Well, this year marks the first year that I have two of my sons finally in sports. Um, I, I played sports growing up, and so I was excited about the day that I could let them play sports as well. And so my two sons are both playing soccer. And so this weekend was actually the first time one of them played in an actual game, and I had to go there as a parent. As a parent, if you've ever watched your kids play sports, it is the most nerve-wracking, stressful moments of, of your life, or was mine anyway. And so I'm there on the side of the field just like hoping that he does well, hoping that you know, he, he knows what's going on. And immediately I was pushed back into my first moment on the soccer field, the first time I played soccer. And I remember that the... They would assign different roles to different players, some defense, some offense, some midfield. And I think they wanted to rotate everyone through every position. And so it was my turn to go into the goal, right, to be the goalie. And so they put, like, the gloves on my hands. They put the jersey on my body. And they send me out into the goal. Now, I had uh, a theory or an idea of what it looked like to be a goalie in a game. I had never experienced the reality of it, right? I never experienced game speed. And so as I'm sitting there in the goal, suddenly the whistle blows and there's a breakaway. There was like, I don't know, 500 seven-year-olds like racing towards me like a herd of buffalo, right? And I'm just standing there, kind of get ready for the impact. And and so I do what, what most people would do in that moment. I close my eyes, I curl my body, I extended my hands to defend the goal, right? And the next thing I know, I hear the whistle blow, I look to the back of the net, I see the ball on the back of the net, and I see the coach on the sideline kind of signaling for, sub, sub, this didn't work out well at all. <laughs> and I look at that moment, I'm, I'm kind of like, I, that's, that's actually pretty accurate for how I've been through many moments in life. Like, I thought I was prepared, but when I got into the speed of the game, I realized how unprepared I actually was. I mean, I've, seen, I've experienced this in classes, You know, you sit in front of a professor, they prepare you for the exam, you think, and then you get to the exam and you realize it was a lot harder than those practice problems. And the professor says something helpful like, I just want to see how much you know. And I'm like, I clearly did not know what you wanted me to know. And the same is true in life. When when the speed turns up, when the speed of life hits you, you can find yourself paralyzed. You can find yourself not expecting what's coming because life throws you challenges. Life throws you difficulties. Life throws you obstacles. There's unexpected curveballs that life will throw your way. And I'll tell you what, the Christian life is no different. There are challenges, difficulties, and obstacles that will come your way as you try to live the Christian life. And it's why at the end of this passage, Paul writes this, don't lose heart. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. He says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. He tells them don't lose heart. What does it mean to lose heart? Well, it means this, to to lose courage or to be faint of heart. It means literally when, when you lose the courage to risk, when you lose the courage to continue, when you lose the courage to keep going. And, and why is he saying that? Well, there's, there's something going on in Paul's life that you've got to see. And it happens in verse one. He says, he's a prisoner. See, he's in a bad situation and he tells them, Hey, don't, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering. This isn't a surprise, but I'll tell you what, there's something that causes us to lose heart. And it's this unmet expectations. If you wonder why you get frustrated in life, it's simply this. You have expectations that go unmet. 
And it's simply like this. Uh, it's, it's, it's when your job is harder than you expect. It's when school is a little bit more challenging than you thought. It's when your, your marriage is harder than what you thought. And, and there's, a, there's a subtle belief that I think we as Christians have, and it's this. If I obey, then things will go my way. Right? If I obey, if I do the right things, if I, if, I, if I pray the right prayers, if I attend the right church, if I obey, then things will go my way. But, but when the speed of life hits you, what you realize is things aren't always going my way. Sometimes there are challenges, unexpected barriers that come my way. And when those unexpected challenges come, it's very easy to get knocked off course. But there's something that Paul wants to show us. He wants us not to lose heart at the situations. And there's something that Paul does. He says this, not if I obey, things will go my way. He says this, I obey Jesus, show me the way. He says, I obey Jesus, show me the way. And what he realizes quickly is that the way is going to be tough. And so there's something that Paul wants to give us in this section. In the midst of our struggle, there are three pieces from this chapter that Paul wants to give us. And the first piece is this, that he wants to change our perspective on our circumstances. Secondly, he wants us to embrace the greatness of the responsibility. And thirdly, he wants us to live your perfect part. In verse 1, we see the perspective that he wants to change in us. He says it this way in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, on behalf of you, Gentiles. And did you see it? He says he's a prisoner. Now, why was Paul in prison? And if if you look at your text, you kind of see a dash after the phrase Gentiles. It's because Paul basically realizes in this moment, he just dropped a bombshell. And verses 2 through 12 is basically an aside. It's a statement to explain that word that would have dropped like a bomb to the Ephesians. He says he's a prisoner. And immediately that should go, it should strike you like, uh, why was Paul in prison? I mean, if, if I was to say to you, hey guys, I'm a prisoner on your behalf. Don't worry about it, right? You'd be like, Kevin, why did you do jail time? Kevin, were you a youth pastor at one point in time? Were you in jail while you were a youth pastor? Like, what, what's going on here, right? But what was that time in prison? He realizes that he had just dropped a bomb, but there's a reason he's in prison. You see, in Acts chapter 21, we see that he was trying to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. In fact, he had gone to Jerusalem and he had brought Trophimus, a, a Gentile, a non-Jewish Ephesian, to Jerusalem with him. And as, he, as he's bringing Trophimus into Jerusalem, some of the Jews think that they had brought, he had brought Trophimus into the temple, defiling the temple. He had brought an outsider inside, and that caused an uproar. And so immediately the Jews arrest him, and they went to see what's going on. And he declares to them, hey, I'm preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Jesus has come, and this message isn't, isn't meant to be in the barriers of your life and my life. It's meant to expand to the entire world. And I'm going to preach that message. I'm going to extend this message outward. And they're like, that's a problem. And then they run into the Roman officials. So he goes before Festus. He goes through to Agrippa. He goes through all of these different moments where he's in prison being accused, being asked, what are you actually doing? And then he appeals to Caesar. 
See, as a Roman citizen, you could say, I want Caesar to hear my case. Not just Jerusalem, not just these small governors. I want Caesar literally to hear my case. And they say, all right, we're going to rush you all the way to Caesar. And so for four years, Paul spends time in prison. His circumstances for the next four years are going to be as a prisoner. Now look at that moment and I'm going, if I was Paul, and if I'm supposed to preach the gospel, and yet I've got these four years where I'm just in a prison cell or being chained and under house arrest, how would I feel in that moment? And none of it was his fault, right? I mean, it was jealous people. It was random leaders. It was Rome itself. I mean, at one level, Paul had all the reason in the world to blame these people for his circumstances, But he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Rome. He doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of of jealous people. What does he say? I'm a prisoner of Christ. Isn't that unique? Isn't that a ridiculous perspective? See, I think for most of us, we think that our circumstances we are in are in the way of what God is doing. But here's Paul's perspective. My circumstances are actually the way God is doing it. See, my circumstances aren't in the way of what God's trying to do. My circumstances are literally the way God is using to carry out his plan. And I'll tell you what, I've heard so many excuses over the years from different people of why they can't live a life for God and why they lose heart in the Christian faith. And for some of you, it's like, well, I'm in in college. Like, Kevin, I'm in engineering. I've got exams. I mean, do you know my professors? They're insane. They're in this room, but they're insane, right? And the the demands are so high. And I I just, whenever I get past college, then life will just settle down. It'll be easy, right? I'll have more free time to dedicate to the Lord. And then you graduate. And then you enter into work world. And you realize, oh my gosh. How much freedom did I have back then? And and then I talk to new people. and, And they're new parents. And they're like, Kevin... Um, I don't know if you've had kids before, (sighs) but they're crazy, you know, and, and they don't sleep when I tell them to, they eat on their own schedule. All they do is poop and pee and like, they're exhausted. You see like zombie moms walking around like I'm here at church, you know, and, and, and just surviving the day is the biggest win. And I get it. I've been there. And I'll tell you what you, we use that excuse to pull us away from being the purpose of God. Instead of saying, maybe these circumstances are actually the way God wants to use me. Maybe these difficulties are what God is uniquely using in this season. I've heard heard people use their job as an excuse. Well, I work a ton of hours, I travel a lot, and, and, and I hear that. But maybe your job is actually the avenue God has put in your path to represent and use you. So you don't lose heart. And don't lose heart at your struggles. Many of us, I, I, there, there's real pain in this room. There's real challenges in this room. There's real obstacles in this room. But it could be that some of the greatest obstacles you face could be the greatest avenue for the gospel to spread. John Calvin, he became a Christian in France. And he had to literally run for his life after he wrote the Institutes. He had to run for his life and he was hoping to go to Strasbourg. Because in Strasbourg, it was a free city. You could believe what you wanted to. And as he's going that way, he spends a night in a hotel in Geneva. And in that hotel in Geneva, he meets a man named Pharrell. Who says, not the modern singer, but like, 
Pharaoh, okay? And he meets this guy and he says, Calvin, you've got to stay here. Your ministry needs to be here. And it says Calvin was staying for one night. Besides, he was not a scholar or a pastor, so he made excuses to Pharrell. And then he went home after Pharrell challenged him to stay. And he says this, I felt as if God from heaven had laid his mighty hand upon me to stop me in my course. And I was so terror-stricken that I did not continue my journey. And it was from Geneva, where he was running for his life, that he wrote some of the greatest contributions he could to the reform movement, to the reform church. And I'll tell you what, sometimes your course change is actually the thing God is using to spread the gospel that you might make a great impact. Pastor Craig Rochelle says this, you can make an excuse or you can make a difference, but you can't do both. I can view my circumstances as the problem, but maybe those circumstances are actually the avenue. And I'll tell you what, Jesus is in control. He's in control of your life and your circumstances. You're not here by an accident. You're here on purpose. And no situation you encounter is against God's sovereign control. He's going to use it purposefully if you let him. So change your perspective. But secondly, embrace the greatness of the responsibility. Embrace the greatness of the responsibility. Paul says it this way in verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. He tells them, assuming you have heard. He means like, you know what, you know what I've been through. Like, you know. And, and the reason they know is because Paul had visited them. He had started that church. They knew Paul's story. But most of us don't. You see, Paul was the most unlikely convert you could ever experience. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, it says that Paul stood and approved the stoning of Stephen. One of the first Christian martyrs, it was Paul standing on the side, guarding the coats of the guys that were chunking stones to kill Stephen. And he's standing there in approval. And he watched that go down and he decides, let's try to up the game now. He gets letters literally from the, from the leader of the Jerusalem um, synagogue, um, the high priest, and says, I'm going to go capture Christians, arrest them, and be someone that stops this movement. He was on the forefront of stopping Christianity until Acts chapter 9. And he's walking down the road, and suddenly he sees a bright light, and he falls to the ground. Everyone's stunned. And he asks a question that shows that he actually already knew the answer. He said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, why are you persecuting my church? I've got a new path for you. And he goes and, and tells someone ahead of the path, he says, he calls this guy named Annas. He says, Annas, I want you to go help Paul out. And Annas is like, no, he's been persecuting the church. He's insane. Like, I'm not going to go help that guy. And God says this to Annas, go, for he, that's Paul, is my chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and he and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. You know the first thing God does in his life? He pulls an enemy and makes him a friend. See, he takes the guy that was speaking against him and pulls him right in to make him his spokesman. He does that all the time. 
He takes enemies and makes them friends. This happened with C.S. Lewis, one of the most prolific Christian writers of, of the recent past century. And he is a, an amazing author, wrote so many great books, but he was the most, in his own words, the most unlikely convert. He says this, You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in. And I admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. And that may be, be you this morning. You may be here going, like, I'm not sure about that Christian thing. I'm not sure about that mission and that message and what they're doing. But I'll just tell you this. God pulls people that don't want him all the time. It's his MO. You may not be looking for God, but God is looking for you. You may not be reaching for God, but God is reaching for you. And he's pulling you in. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to give you the message to share that the world needs to hear. And that was exactly what was given to Paul. In verse 3, he says it this way. Now, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. It is now given and been revealed by his holy apostles and the Spirit. You get this mystery. And that's, that's a weird word that Paul uses. He calls the message of the gospel a mystery. Now, in our day and age, mysteries are like novels or movies where it's something that there's clues left along the path that you must discover for yourself. And if you put the clues together, you can discover the mystery. But that's not what Paul means. That's not the biblical framework of mystery. A mystery in the Bible is this, something we would never believe if it wasn't revealed. Something that we would never come to on our own. And there's something that we would never come to on our own that it comes to us in verse 6. He says, the mystery is this. What is it? That the Gentiles, the outsiders, those who are far away, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. You see what he says? I'm moving into the world, and I'm making enemies friends, and I'm bringing unity where there was separation. I'm making enemies friends, and I'm bringing unity where there was separation. He calls the Gentiles fellow heirs. You know what an heir is? An heir means you get the goods, right? So if you were the heir of Bill Gates, that would mean that you get part of his cash when he moves on, right? If you're the heir of a rich person, you get the wealth of the rich people. And he says, look, I've, I've died for those who are outside. And I didn't say like, hey, so good that I forgave you. He says, you get the riches of being part of the family, You're not just welcome in the house. You are now a son and a daughter in the house. I'm making you members of of, of this family. But more than that, he says, I want you to be members of the body. He says, I'm making a new humanity. I'm making a new people. You see, in the Old Testament, it was believed that that the nation of Israel would be spotlighting the, the glory of God to the world. And in order to spotlight the glory of God, you had to become a member of that family. You had to, to be converted into that religion, that relationship. But God says, no, I'm breaking down that dividing wall. 
And everyone who is, fall off, who is far off is brought into a new body. It is called the church. A unity across race, across ideology, across all spectrum of humanity. And it's not based in a particular community. It's global. And you realize that's, that's true. The Christian faith is global. You may think it's a white thing. It's not. It wasn't started by a white guy. And it's not only practiced by Caucasian people. In fact, the Christianity is growing highest in South America and Africa. The number of Christians in those areas is completely on the rise. Read the statistics. It's incredible how fast God is moving and breaking all sorts of barriers and boundaries that we may not see immediately. But if you were to travel to those places, you'll see so many Christians sprouting up. We had the the giveaway um, a little while ago, uh, and we give uh, furniture away to international students coming here. And and the the goal uh, is, is to help them, like number one, but also to maybe provide an opportunity to share the gospel. And so there was one girl from India who was getting some furniture, and one of the people working would try to start sharing the gospel with her. And she goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. <laughs> and this girl who was sharing was like, oh, I didn't know. And she's like, oh, yeah, I've been a Christian like my whole life. My family's Christian. And she was like, mind explosion. This isn't just an American thing. This thing is global in reach. And this thing that is spreading across the world is meant to bring unity. I love Blake's message last week. If you weren't here to to listen to it, I I would encourage you to go listen to it. Because there's a unifying nature to the gospel that cuts across all race, all religion, everything that divides. And it's supposed to bring us together as one in Christ. And I'll tell you what, everyone's trying to bring unity. Through politics, through political party through world powers, through humanitarian efforts. Like everyone is trying to bring unity, but, but it's very often not unifying. In fact, it's, it's actually Christianity that brings the greatest unity. And when you see Christianity work, it's so impressive. I'm going to read you an extended account from a British columnist named Matthew Paris. He's an atheist but he writes this about what he saw in Christianity. He says this, Before I returned, after 45 years, to the country that as a boy I I knew as um, Nazaland. Today it's Malawi. And the the Times Christmas appeal, including a small British charity working there. Pump, Pump aids help rural communities to install simple pumps, letting people keep their village wells sealed for clean. And I went to see this work. It inspired me, renewing my flagging faith and developing charities. But traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief too, one that I've been trying to banish all my life, but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit in my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist... I become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts 
It brings spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. Isn't that amazing? An atheist who goes back to his home country sees the difference that Christianity can make and says, there's something unique here. There's something that the gospel into this community brings that simple relief effort or government programs won't fix. There's a heart transformation that the gospel brings to unify people. It brings outsiders in and and can literally change everything. You have a tremendous gospel that's been given to you. The whole goal is to share. Paul says it this way in 3.7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. He says, I've been given this great gift to play a part. It was my son's birthday on Friday, and so I stole one of his presents. And what's, what's great about birthdays, if you ever have them, um, I haven't had one in like a decade, but if you have a birthday and people bring you presents for your birthday, uh, it's so fun. And, and the gift is absolutely incredible. And that's what Paul says. He says, I got the gospel and it was like I was given a gift and a responsibility. And it's an amazing gift to receive. The gospel will literally change the world if we get the message out. It is a phenomenal gift. But here's the problem. It's a beautiful gift but it's given to people in a tattered package. Thank you, Alex. Give Alex a hand, people. (laughs) Paul says it this way in Ephesians 3.8. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You know what Paul says of himself? He says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the smallest. Literally, his, his name, Paulos, could be translated little in Latin. So he may even be using a play on words like, little Paul got this big message. That's, that's what he's saying. I'm just a little guy. Now, why would Paul say that? Well, at one level, he also repeats this in, in 2 Timothy where he says, or 1 Timothy where he says, I'm the least unworthy to be called an apostle. I've got this great gift in a tattered package. And we know from external sources that Paul actually wasn't a beautiful man. He was a small man. And we get a little hint of this in in 1 Corinthians where he says, um, the Corinthians were expecting this powerful speaker, this powerful charismatic individual to bring the message. And they said of him, he says, his words are weighty, but his appearance leaves something to be desired. He had this great message in a very tattered package. But that's just like God. See, God doesn't use perfect people to bring his perfect message. He brings people in tattered packages. And he does this all the time. Moses, right? God calls Moses to to free the people of Israel, right? He calls them, come, spread this message. Go, I'm going to release my people, go. And he's like, I don't know, God. Sounds like it's going to be tough. He goes through excuse after excuse. I'm the wrong guy. I'm the wrong guy. And finally he says, God, I can't even speak well. You want me to stand before Pharaoh and give this message? I can't even speak. You know what God says? He doesn't give him like a a cheerleader moment. Like, oh, come on, Moses. Believe in yourself. Just be you and you be you out there. And and if you be you out there, that will be the best that the world ever sees. Like, you just got to believe in yourself. Just just hold on to that. And, And no, God doesn't go there at all. He says, I know that. Who do you think made the tongue? 
which is a, which is a rough argument, right? Like, I know your limits, dude. I gave them to you. Like, that's God's argument. He's like, I've got a bad tongue. I got a speech impediment. God's like, I know. I gave you that limp. Like, I know you can't speak. To Gideon. Gideon's in a wine press making bread, mad at everyone that Midian is coming, attacking him. He's so mad. And an angel comes to, comes to him. And he explodes on the angel. He's like, what, if God is with us, then why has all this happened? And the angel says to him, hey, well, go in this your strength and go save them. Go free them. He's like, oh, but I'm the smallest one. I'm the least in my father's house. And the angel's like, ah, go. <laughs> I'll put out a fleece. Yeah, yeah, go. Okay, I'm going to do this. Yeah, yeah, go. Just go. God uses broken people in tattered packages because the most important thing isn't the package. It's the message. It's the message that changes everything. It's not the deliverer. See, we are called to live our perfect part. And the perfect part is this, that the, the world and the angels would see the glory of God through ordinary, simple people, that he is restoring everything to the way that it should be. And he gives that message, not through impressive people, not through powerful people, through normal people that believe that they are the least of these that are entrusted with the unsearchable riches of Christ. He says, I've got this great message in a tattered package, but I'm going to speak it because the message is too beautiful. The message is too beautiful. Verse 9, he says it this way, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You see that word in verse 10, manifold? It means multicolored. It's used to describe flowers or crowns or embroidered embroidered uh, carpets. John Stott writes this of that word. He says, the church is a multiracial, multicultural community is like a beautiful tapestry. Its members come from a wide range of colorful backgrounds. No other human community resembles it. Its diversity and harmony are unique. It's God's new society. He says, we are supposed to be this multicultural, multidimensional, broken, imperfect, ugly, and attractive, variety, smart, and dumb people with the most beautiful message the world has ever seen. That God is restoring everything to himself. He says, this is according with his eternal purpose that has been realized in Christ Jesus. It's almost like God has been holding this back through the ages. And at the right moment, Jesus came. And then he started picking a crew to get this message to the world. And we were the church. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are members of the church. And that gift is given to you. The gift of the gospel that can change everything has been put into your hands that you might make a great impact with your simple, ordinary life. That's what he says in verse 12, in whom we have boldness 
and access and confidence through faith. So I ask you, do not lose heart from what I'm suffering for you. It's for your glory. Why is it for their glory? Because they can watch someone go all the way to the end, confident in God, faithful that I'm called to be part of his mission and play their part. Several years ago, I was uh, watching a sermon from Watermark Community Church. And uh, I don't typically cry at sermons, um, but this one just was a tearjerker. Um, and because the man giving the message, there's a man named Nick Vojcic. And he's an Australian guy, and he was born without arms and legs. And he was giving his testimony. And they had him kind of on a table, um, standing up there, and he's standing on top of the table, and, and he's giving his message. And, and he kind of make, cracks some jokes. He's like, this wasn't what you expected, was it? And he goes, let me tell you my story. He says, I grew up to Christian parents who, who loved me dearly, but I was born without arms and legs, and I thought there's no way I can make a difference in the world. There's nothing that I can offer the world. So when he was about 10 years old, he decided to take his own life. And so he didn't have arms and legs, so he couldn't do it easily. And so he asked his mom to run a bath for him. And he laid in the bath, and his plan was to just roll over and end it. In the trial of his parents, the struggle he has, and he's like, what am I going to do? I'm completely dependent. And his mom came in and rescued him and saved him and started bringing him to church more often. And he's like, okay, I'm going to give this God thing a chance. But it was so hard. But he was in a moment, in a room, in a meeting, and he says, fine, God. And this was his confession. God, if you can use a man without arms and legs to be your hands and feet, I'll be yours. And from that moment, his life began to change. And now, according to his website, he's spoken to over six million people the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you look at this man with all the limitations in the world, saying, God, if you'll just use me, I'll be used. I'm going to give this message. And you watch him in Brazil, all over the world, where people come to him crying across all races, across all creeds. It's because he's living the message. I'll tell you what will make the biggest impact in your dorms, in your neighborhoods, at your work, isn't the perfect package. It's the imperfect you that will stand there with your neighbors and say, you know what, I want to tell you the greatest news the world has ever seen about a God who gave everything for your life, about a God who's bringing everything together. Will you come and be a part of it with me? He doesn't need perfect people. He needs imperfect you. And every struggle you face, every challenge you walk through, when you see it through the lens of, hey, God's put me here on purpose, He's in control of the circumstances. God's given me this message, this responsibility. And God can craft me to play the perfect part. You will not lose heart. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you, God, that you used a man like Paul. And we can put Paul on a pedestal. He was the per- seeing him as the perfect person, but he wasn't. He calls it out himself. I was, I'm the least likely. And Lord, I know there's so many of us that feel like we can't be used greatly by you. I pray that you, we might see that you rescue anyone and everyone. And when we come to you,
you give a beautiful message through a tattered package that the world needs to hear. I pray that we might take that and give that wherever you called us to give it. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. You guys have a great morning.